number of uh, old faces up here on the stage. It was good to have Sharia and Bailey with us. Sorry, not familiar faces. Familiar faces, not old faces. Familiar faces. Uh, so we have, uh, we've been talking about, we've been studying what the Bible has to say about leadership. Um, and that's what we're, we're doing that this month as we prepare to nominate elders and, and deacons. And so today we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, and before I read that, uh, I want to give you a little bit of background about what's going on. Uh, 1 Timothy is a letter. It's a letter written to a young pastor named Timothy. And it's written by Timothy's mentor, a man named Paul. And Paul is telling Timothy how to care for and organize the local church. Uh, in other words, 1 Timothy is a letter that's all about leadership. So maybe on our series on leadership, we should have just studied 1 Timothy, but we didn't. So there you go. Right? But 1 Timothy as a letter is all about leadership. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul describes what kind of character we ought to look for in a leader. And so let me just kind of step out what we've seen over the past few weeks. We started by talking about the leader's identity. That, that the Christian leader is, does not find his identity in his work, or rather he tries not to find his identity in his work, his worth, his wealth. Uh, his approval from others, his success, right? That the, the Christ-centered leader finds his identity in Jesus' finished work. That's, that's where we want to rest. And then we looked at the leader's path. That the, the leader follows Jesus down into death and up into life. And so it is a glory road, but it's a road that has to embrace suffering that has to go down before it comes up that in the same way that jesus uh, got to his crown through the cross so the same for the leader who follows jesus he has to go first uh before i mean it's the path for every christian but the christian leader uh should be ready to embrace that road as life models the gospel in that way then last week we talked about the leader's heart we looked at first thessalonians and we said that the leader is motivated by love, right? First Thessalonians 2.8, uh, being affectionately desirous of you, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives, our own selves, our own souls. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. So the, the leader is motivated by love, driven by love. And then today we're going to talk about the leader's character. Uh, what sort of man is he? So, uh, and I've said before, um, even if you're, you're new to us, and maybe you're just investigating the claims of Christianity. So you're like, well, this isn't, what, what does this have to do with me? Uh, what I hope you see here is a vision of what a person can be because of Jesus. Okay? Uh, so let's read together 1 Timothy 3. If you're using uh, the Bible that's there in the, in the row, it should be on page 992. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He mustn't be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Father, as we read these words and now as I try to explain them, I just pray for your help. I pray that you would take the truth of your word and that you would write it on our hearts. And we pray this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Have, uh, have you ever had your picture drawn by a caricature artist? Yep, probably, right? Uh, all right. You usually see these people, or at least where I see them in my memory is in theme parks, right? So when you walk through Six Flags, you know, next to the overpriced hats and sunglasses and the frozen lemonade, there's the caricature artist. Uh, and they don't draw true-to-life portraits, right? What they, what they do is they exaggerate or they bring out prominent features, uh, you know, in just a few minutes to kind of give you a caricature of yourself. Um, I was on a a middle school band trip to Opryland in Nashville, and that was as amazing as it sounds. Um, and uh, my parents weren't with me to tell to tell me that this was a dumb way to spend my money, and so uh, I had a caricature caricature drawn. Uh, and I think my uh, my predominant features at that point in my life uh, were a uh, not the cool kind, if there is a cool kind, um, a double chin braces, and like an Alabama baseball cap. So, I mean, again, it sounds, it's, it was every bit as glorious as it sounds. Uh, so you can imagine what made it on my caricature, the mullet, the braces, the double chin, and the baseball cap, right? Um, well, Paul here is giving us a, a caricature of sorts. What he's doing is he's bringing out the prominent features, the things that should stick out about Elders and deacons, about church leaders, what sort of character traits should we look for? What kind of men grace the church and the world? Um, and I want you to notice something, that he never describes what elders and deacons do. 
Now, we're going to get to that. We're going to do that over the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about what deacons do, and then we'll talk about what elders do. But right here, Paul doesn't do that. It's interesting that in this letter about leadership, his main concern is not what a leader does, but who a leader is. He doesn't talk about how gifted he is. He doesn't talk about his skills. He doesn't talk about his passion or dynamism or zeal. He talks about his character. He talks about who he is, right? Being comes before doing. How different that is from the way we often seek leaders. We've sort of embraced a a, a pragmatism that says, "I, I don't care what he's like as long as he gets the job done. We've removed character from competence and assuming that as long as he's competent, it doesn't matter what his character is. But that's the reverse. Now, now competence, how good he is at what he does, that's, that's relevant. We don't want incompetent or ineffective leaders, but we put character underneath competence and the Bible puts it before. In fact, I would argue that if a man has character... He will become competent. All right? So uh, here's, here's the main idea. Good character comes before competence. That's what Paul is bringing out in these verses. He's showing us a man of character. Now, I do want you to notice something. We're actually going to look at both elders and deacons under the same headings. If you look at verse 8, uh, Paul says, Deacons likewise, or similarly must be dignified. Okay, similarly dignified to whom? Well, the only other person that's been mentioned up to this point is the elder. And so a lot of what we can say about elders can also be said to be true of deacons. There are some exceptions. Uh, There's there's some uniqueness there to the role of the elder. Uh, But in terms of character, both men need to be respectable, right? So some uh, some a lot of what we say will overlap. The other thing I want to point out is that the word Paul uses here in verse 1 is the word overseer. He doesn't use the word elder. But in his letter to Titus, in Titus 1-7, he uses elder and overseer interchangeably. So we say that that refers to the same person. The elder is an overseer. The overseer is an elder. It's just two names for the same office. Uh, So I don't want you to be confused about that. Uh, But we're going to look at uh, his walks, right, the different walks that he has. We're going to talk about his walk with others. We're going to talk about his walk with his family. And we're going to talk about his walk with God. And because those can be some pretty daunting things to talk about, uh, even as we read those verses, you may think, good grief, who's living up to this? But we're going to finish with some encouragement. So first, let's talk about uh, his walk with others. Uh, Paul tells us in verse 2 that an overseer must be above reproach. Uh, He's talking about his reputation. Uh, The word literally means not to be laid a hold of. You can't put a hand on him. Um, What that means is not that he's sinless. It doesn't mean that he never does anything wrong. But it means that overall his way of life is such that you couldn't, if you wanted to bring a charge against him, you couldn't because there's no evidence. In other words, he's, he's a good man, and he has a good reputation. 
And not, not a false reputation, but a, a well-earned reputation. That's really what we're talking about here. In fact, that, that word above reproach, that phrase, really is, you could say, uh, everything that comes after it describes what it means to be above reproach. So it doesn't mean sinless, but it means he lives in a way that doesn't leave him open to accusations. Uh, and this parallels with verse 7 where we're told that this same person must be well thought of by outsiders. Uh, Literally, he has a good testimony from those outside. Now, why does it matter what people outside of the church think? If the church chooses some leaders, why why does it matter what what they, whoever they are, right? Why does it matter what they say? Well, imagine I'm, you know, walking through the YMCA because uh, between work and family, that's where we seem to spend most of our time is at the YMCA. Uh, and a person's name comes up. I'm, I'm having a conversation and a certain man's name comes up. And this person says, oh, he goes to your church? Right? That's not, that's not a good sign, right? That's not what we're looking for. Uh, there's something in his life uh, that needs to be examined. He's got himself a, a bad reputation, which uh, that, that means, right, that his life and his message don't match. And when our lives and our messages don't match, right, we, really truthfully, we live the message we really believe, right? Uh, so when we lack integrity, when our lives and our messages don't, ma- don't match, it means we really don't believe the message. We believe something else. And so... That brings disgrace on us, right? We're saying one thing and doing another, and it brings disgrace on the church. And so we want to be careful about that. We want to be above reproach. We want to have a good reputation. Uh, so what, is, what does this look like? Well, first we see that this is a man who's under control. Look at verse 2 again. Sober-minded, right? He's, he's mild, not given to excess. He's self-controlled. He exercises good judgment. He's not easily swayed. He's not rash. He's respectable. The word root means orderly. He's controlled. Okay? That's what he is. And then in verse 3, we see what he's not. He's not a drunkard. He's not, instead of, uh, he's not controlled by the spirits. Rather, he's, he's controlled by the spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit. He's not violent, belligerent, pugnacious, always preferring to settle things with his fists. Not violent, but gentle. And actually, these three go together because gentle is the opposite of both violent and quarrelsome. Right? He's a, he's a peacemaker, not a fire starter. He's not quarrelsome. And this is the heart underneath violent. Right, This person who's always looking for a fight, always defensive, maybe not even wanting to start a fight, but when, uh, but when conflict comes his way, he reacts very strongly. Right? He might say, well, I don't start a fight, but I'll sure finish it. Again, we're not looking for that guy. All right? Um, great illustration of this. Uh, do, you know, do you know where we get that phrase, a chip on his shoulder? You know where that comes from? It comes from the 1800s when you had lots of woodsmen out clearing the frontier, right? And what these guys would do is they would literally put a a wood chip on their shoulders and dare someone to come knock it off. 
right? They were, they were, they were looking for a fight. They had something to prove who was going to be the baddest. But that's not what Paul says we're looking for. We're not looking for quarrelsome, violent people. We're looking for gentle people. That's not a, that's not a word we used to talk about masculinity much. Is this a softy? Is this a, is this a man with, with no backbone? No. What we're asking is how does he approach conflict? Right? Is he looking to prove himself? Is he looking to settle something? Is it about his pride? Listen to Paul's later instruction to Timothy. He writes him another letter, 2 Timothy. And this is what he tells him in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 through 26. Timothy was having to deal with false teachers in the church. There were people, there were opponents, uh, people who were challenging Timothy. And here's what Paul, here's how Paul tells him to handle that. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. There's always going to be unhappy people. There's always going to be grumblers and complainers, people spoiling for a fight. And they don't really want resolution. They just want to keep fighting. And Paul says, have nothing to do with those people. That's not, that's not the kind of people we want to keep around. Then he says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Right? So this is not a, a picture of a soft man who's running away. He's enduring. He's teaching. He's being patient. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. He's not out to say, I told you so. In fact, he says this, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I'm not looking to defeat you. I'm looking to win you. That's, that's the kind of strong man the church needs. And then back in 1 Timothy 3, he's not a lover of money, not covetous. Right? This, this isn't so much about how he gets his money. Right? Did he come by it honestly, without deceit? But his attitude towards money, does he always want more? Does he love it, whether he has it or not? So we could summarize all of these things by asking this question, what controls him? Is he controlled by his passions, his passion for more money, his passion for more wine, his passion for a fight? Is he controlled by his belly or is he controlled by God? Is he under the control of the Spirit? He's under control. We also see this in verse 2. He's hospitable. Hospitable. That word literally means a friend of strangers. So it, it doesn't mean what we think it means, entertaining. It doesn't mean he throws lavish dinner parties where you put your on your best to impress I love Rosaria Butterfield's definition, a good book on hospitality. The gospel comes with a house key. I recommend it to you. She says this, hospitality is using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers into neighbors and neighbors into the family of God. That's, that's hospitality, right? The elder, and notice this is directed to the elder, not to his wife. 
the elder, his home may not always be clean, but it is open. His table is open. Uh, As far as the deacons go, we wouldn't add a whole lot here. We could look at verse 10 where it says uh, that he should be tested first. This doesn't refer to like an official deacon's test. It means his life should be looked at. That if we're going to nominate a man to serve as a deacon, he should already be doing some service. He should already be serving in some capacity. And it says he should be blameless. A similar word to above reproach. Again, not sinless, but uh, people don't need to, to look at him if he says, I'm not, I've been nominated as a deacon, and they, and they go, him? Right, we, don't, we don't want that. Um, he's not double-tongued. It means he, he doesn't say one thing but mean another or speak out of both sides of his mouth. He says what he means. He's not deceitful. That's what it looks like uh, for, for a leader's walk with others. Let's talk about a leader's walk with his family. Uh, Both, it says, uh, Paul writes, are to be the husband of one wife. The the literal phrase here is a one-woman man. Now, in the history of the church, uh, some have taken this to mean, okay, then either uh, an elder and a deacon, they have to be married. And that's not true, um, because then Jesus would be disqualified from ministry. Okay, so that's not true. Uh, others have taken this, and this is much more common, and people have said, oh, well, if he's ever been divorced, he's disqualified from office. But I would argue that that's not what Paul is addressing here. Right? We're taking what happens in our day. When, when we say that, what we're doing is we're looking at our situation and reading it back into Scripture. Um, but we need to, that's, that's bad interpretation. We need to start with Paul. What was going on in his day? And what the family might have looked like in his day, it was common for a man to be married to a wife uh, for the purpose of raising children, having an heir, etc. But you also might have a mistress on the side for pleasure, right? And depending on where you were and what God you worshipped, you also probably went down to the local pagan temple uh, and slept with a cult prostitute, right? So that's the situation into which Paul is speaking, So when he says that an elder and a deacon need to be a husband of one wife, he's saying they need to be faithful men. They need to be faithful to the one woman to whom they are married. And you think about why that's true. If we, you know, if we, uh, you can be married. I've known men who've been lifelong married and unfaithful, right? Marriage and divorce are not the litmus test of, of fidelity, okay? That doesn't mean it's not relevant. We do ask questions in the interview process and the examination process. We talk about prior marriages. What were they like? What happened? Why why did you divorce? Who was to blame? We go into all of that. But when Paul is saying, let them be the husbands of one wife, they're referring to their faithfulness. Their faithfulness. Is he faithful to his wife? Not only are they faithful husbands, but they're also faithful dads. Look at verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. We don't much care for that word submissive, right? Uh, We hear that and we go, okay, so this guy is a dictator, right? Uh, You know, his children meet him in the driveway with a salute. They don't make eye contact. Um, You know, everything is always in order. No, think about what we already said about his character. 
uh, what, he, what we already said about his reputation. That sort of man isn't an autocratic dictator, right? Uh, so it doesn't mean, Paul doesn't mean that your, uh, your children have to be sinless. Or they don't have to be perfect. But it does mean they don't need to blatantly disregard your authority. It means that your children respect your leadership. And again, if we're the kind of man that we talked about in, in Roman numeral one, under point one, then that sort of submission comes relatively easy. Do your children respect your authority? Another way to look at this would be to say, uh, who's in charge in your home? Is it your children or is it you? That's, that's what Paul is talking about. And the reason, right, is he says, if one can't manage his own home, how can he manage God's church, right? We're arguing from the, the, the lesser to the greater, You've got to be able to manage your home, and then we can talk about managing God's household, God's church. Um, and the same would be true for deacons as well. Uh, let, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. All right, so that's his walk with his family. Let's talk about his walk with God. We see in verse 2 that the elder is able to teach. So this is one of those things that makes the elder different from the deacon. He exercises authority through teaching. And that doesn't mean that he has to have incredible public speaking gifts, but it does mean he knows his Bible, he understands the gospel, and he understands how to communicate it to people in a way that they understand. He exercises influence and leadership through the word. All right, and that's, that's not a characteristic of every Christian. That's not, a character, that's not a qualification for deacon. And we'll talk about this more when we come to the office of elder in a couple weeks. We also see this in verse 6, that an elder should not be a new convert, recently converted. Literally, the word means a new plant, right? Uh, why is it not, you know, a, a, a sapling is very different in strength from a full-grown oak tree. Uh, we're looking for leaders, elders, who are moving more towards, uh, moving away from sapling into oak tree, right? Why? Uh, because he might think too well of himself, right? He might fall into pride and into judgment. Um, why would that be more likely of a new convert? Why would a new, a new convert be more likely to fall into pride, into conceit? Well, no offense to my friends in their 20s, uh, but because, listen, there are plenty of guys in their 60s and 70s who act like 20-year-olds. Um, but on the whole, right, com, com, what happens as you get older? You tend to temper a little bit. You tend to not be as rash, right? There were lots of things that I felt very strongly about in my 20s, and I was absolutely sure I was right. As my friend Paul says, I was often wrong but never in doubt, what happens as you mature, right, after, after you lead with a limp, right, after, uh, after you've gone through some suffering and humbling circumstances, uh, that brings maturity, and that's a difficult process. You're a little bit more humble uh, than you were in your youth, and so the same would be true here of the elder. Um, so it shouldn't be a new convert. Uh, in fact, it's interesting, we see that the all of the first disciples spent three years living with Jesus, listening to Jesus, being taught by Jesus. 
Paul spent three years studying in Arabia after meeting Jesus, and then he didn't start missionary work for another seven years. So between meeting Jesus and being ordained to, to official ministry was a decade for Paul of preparation. And when we went to the book of Acts, right, he didn't establish elders the first time he went through all that when he planted those churches. It was the second trip around a year or so later when he established elders. So it takes time to build spiritual maturity. What about the deacon? Well, we see that the, the deacon uh, in verse 9, he's not a teacher, but he still has to hold the mystery of the faith. What do we mean by that? Well, the mystery of the faith uh, in the Bible doesn't mean things that are concealed or hidden. It means the revealed truth of Christianity. And so what this is telling us is that the deacon, he too has to be able to understand the gospel, hold fast to the truth, and as he does, his conscience is cleansed, right? So this is not a, again, not a doubter, not somebody who's tossed to and fro, but he holds fast to Jesus and the truth. So that's his walk with others, his walk with his family, his walk with God. Fellas, how are you feeling so far? Who's ready to quit? All right. Um, right. We, we hear that, and our first response is, who in the world can live up to this? Well, at least that's my first response to this. Um, who in the world can live up to this? But I want you to notice something. Paul gives some encouragement. Paul gives some encouragement. Actually, the first thing I want you to notice is that this isn't impossible. Right? As you read this description, is this not somebody you would hire? Is this not the way that you want your sons to behave? Is this, like, this, is, this is not an extraordinary character. It's, right? I mean, it's a high standard, but it's not an impossible standard. Right? This, is a, this is a reasonable pursuit. This is a direction that we can go, especially by God's grace, so let's look at the encouragement that he gives. First, notice how he encourages the elder. Verse 1. He says, if anyone is aspires, so he says it's okay to want the office of overseer. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. A good work. A beautiful work is what it says. Why would he have to say that? In our day and age, uh, at least in the South, right, church leadership is usually something we put on the resume. I remember uh, when I worked with students over in Mississippi, uh, whenever it was homecoming time and we were parading the, you know, the queens and their courts out on the field, you know, we had to give the story for each uh, young lady. Uh, and, and without fail, all of them were mentioned like, and she is a faithful member of the First Presbyterian Youth Group, right? Identification with the church is kind of a badge of honor for us. It's got some, it's got some social credibility. Now, that's passing away, but, and, and I'll be honest, I don't think that's altogether a bad thing, okay? Because here's what it would have looked like in the first century to be a leader of the church. You probably, you, you might have lost your job. You might have been arrested, right? You were, you, you said, I'm going to worship a crucified man as God. Does that sound a little bit crazy to you? I'm going to worship someone who's been executed by the state. That's God. And I believe he's risen again from the dead. That's crazy. 
and I'm going to worship him and not Caesar. Well, that would have gotten you in trouble in the first century. And Paul knows that. And he says, listen, I know this is a costly calling, uh, and it's a difficult calling. To be a shepherd of the flock is difficult. But you know what it is? It's a beautiful work. Because you get the opportunity to invest in the lives of people and make a real difference. It's a beautiful work. So yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's costly. But be encouraged. It's also good. And then notice how he encourages the deacon in verse uh, 13. He says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The word deacon basically means to be a table servant. You're a servant, right? How much honor do, do waiters and waitresses and busboys get in society? Right? It's usually not a job you do for a career, okay? Like you do it while you're in school. Um, right? that, they're not at the top of the social order. They don't usually have a good standing. But Paul says those who serve well as servants, they gain a good standing. Right? They, they have a good standing. That may not be recognized by society, but it's recognized by God, and they have boldness in the faith. All right. So again, you may hear that list in despair. You may ask, who, is, who can do this? Well, it doesn't happen by your own strength. What do you think about the, the men who are described in these verses? The, the word that comes to mind for me is the word free. They are free men. They're free from slavery to sin and self. They don't follow their passions. They follow the Spirit. They're free from slavery to approval and success. They don't love money. They're not in it for, what, for, for, for the benefits of what people say about them. They're free from the fear of others. Where do you find that kind of freedom? How do, how do you become free like that? We find it in Christ. Listen to what he, Paul says in Romans 8. He says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. All right, so you can hear that description of an elder and a deacon, and you can say, all right, I'm going to man up, and I'm going to be that elder. I'm going to be that deacon, and I'm going to do it better than anybody else has ever done it. And that would be the wrong approach. That would be a recipe for failure. Because the law does not give the power for obedience. But what does Romans 8 say? God has done what the law could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God makes this man. He does not make himself. It is not his to do. God makes this man. And so this man is made by humbly relying on the Lord. Right? He reads this list and he goes, man, I'm not keeping my children submissive. I need, I need help with that. I need the Holy Spirit to help me shepherd my children well. You know what? I'm, I'm not as faithful to my wife as I could be. I need God's help with that. I need the Holy Spirit to convict me and to give me new strength so, I, that I'll, so that I will fight for my marriage. Right? 
That's what, that's what this ought to be calling us to, is reliance upon Jesus. And as we do that, he will give us the strength. He will give us the character. He will give us the maturity that we're looking for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. God, we pray that you would give us men like this. Make us men like this. Uh, open our eyes to see uh, how you're at work in our midst. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you, um, would you mold us and shape us that we would bring glory to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite up uh, Tom and Teresa, as I mentioned.